and starts at verse 37. And just before we start, I want you to imagine the scene. This is a public setting. It could be a food court. It could be um, a hawker store. It could be somewhere where there's lots of people. And just imagine what is happening as Jesus does what he does. So that's verse 37 of chapter 7 in the Gospel according to John. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not been glorified. Upon hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others said, He's the Messiah. Still others asked, How can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not Scripture say the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus some of the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Verse 45. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, Why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. You mean you have been deceived also? The Pharisees retorted. Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob who knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, Does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. The word of God. Thanks for that. Ex- oh, let me turn. Thank you, Julian, for an excellent, energetic reading, which that did deserve. Let me pray as we come to the scriptures. Father, open as we've already prayed, as Johnny's already prayed. Open our Hearts, Lord, work on our desires and our emotions and our instincts that we might hear, believe and obey your word even now. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Or Jack and Jill. You know the story. They went up the hill to fetch a pail of water. I don't know what was wrong with Jack and Jill. Why they went up the hill, Jack and Jill should go down the hill to fetch a pail of water. Jack and Jill should go to the well or to the tap to get a fetch a pail of water. But some silly civil engineer sitting in, a, in an office in Piermont decided to put this well on top of the hill, which has to be the worst place to put a well because water goes down. And it's no wonder that Jack fell down and broke his crown. 
Because he put so much effort getting water from the top of the hill. So you don't put water at the top of the hill. So you've got the problem of Jack and Jill and Jerusalem because Jerusalem is on top of a hill. It's 800 metres up in the sky. You go up to Jerusalem. It's a great place to build a fortress city. It's a terrible place if you want water. So, you know, the history of Jerusalem can almost be tracked as a history of water trouble. Throughout its history, how do we get water to this city on a hill where the temple is, where the king is, where the palace is? How do we get water to everybody? It's even worse when you think about the climate of Jerusalem. Here's a graph of rainfall in Jerusalem. It's got temperature there as well, but just look at the blue lines. January, February, March, April. Get to June and it stops raining. June is summer. It doesn't rain until you get June, July, August, September, October, a little bit of rain at the end. And then it starts raining in winter. It's dry for a large portion of the year. The hot months are all dry months in Jerusalem. At the end of summer, after the harvest is gathered, when it's dry, the Israelites celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles. It was instructed in the Old Testament. It was a harvest feast back one. Oh, what's happened to my back one? Board one? I don't know what's happened to my picture. She's gone. Doesn't matter. Back one. <laughs> Back one. I've lost a picture there somewhere and the next one's got no text on it, but okay. Um, Feast of the Tabernacles called Sukkot. It happened in either late September or early October, the, end, the beginning of autumn. It's really, really dry. The crowds, this is when this event happens, crowds would stream up to Jerusalem like Jack and Jill and they'd set up tents in the city, Feast of Tabernacles. It's kind of like splendour in the grass without the mud. And, uh, but it's also it's a national religious camping festival in the city of Jerusalem. It's a harvest festival because the harvest has just been reaped and water is scarce, the land is parched. But every morning on this Feast of Tabernacles, for seven days, for one week, the priests would get these golden pitchers and they would go to the pool of Siloam and they would fill them up with water. And great crowds would follow these priests and they'd have a lemon or an orange in one hand, serious, and branches, willow and uh, myrtle, wrapped in palm and they'd follow the priests as they'd go up to the water gate and then they'd go up to the temple and they'd follow them and they'd be singing with joy you can sure draw water from the wells of salvation. Psalm 14. And they'd be singing other psalms and it'd be a great festival, this great crowd going up to the temple and then at the altar at the time of the morning sacrifice the priest would walk once round the altar and then he'd take this water and he'd pour it into a funnel And that funnel would take that water and put it out into the Kidron Valley. The dry, parched start of this little creek 
running down from Jerusalem. And you can imagine the water coming out of the pipe, hitting the ground, soaked up by the dust. They did that for seven days of the Feast of Tabernacles. Living water would flow from Jerusalem. It's a bit like in the Exodus where Moses drew water from the rock in the wilderness. It's a bit like what the prophet Ezekiel promised that these streams on the great day of the Messiah would flow forth from Jerusalem and feed the whole land. It's a little bit like Isaiah mentioned a number of times that the people would be satisfied, that there would be water. It would be a bit like the sum of the Psalms said, the rivers flowing from the city of God. This little out the pipe onto the dust and disappears. But the water was coming. You just had to wait for the rains. Perhaps most significantly is the link to the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 13. On the day of the Messiah, a fountain will be opened in the, to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. A fountain that would cleanse them from sin. Chapter 14, verse 8. On that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half of it to the east of the Dead Sea and half to the west of the Mediterranean Sea in summer and in winter. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord and his name, the only name. See, this festival was a foreshadowing of the coming day of the Messiah, the day of the Lord, the day of renewal and life when rivers would flow from Jerusalem that would make glad the heart of God. It was a seven-day festival full of messianic expectation. And on the seventh day, the greatest day of the feast, they do the whole ceremony. At this time, the priest would go round the altar seven times and pour the water into the funnel. It's thought that this practice happened about two or three hundred years before Jesus. So it's a well-established pattern by the time Jesus was in Jerusalem. Into that scene. Now we've got our next picture. Into that scene of thirst that is rich with messianic expectations, as we look forward to the new age of prosperity and peace, on the last and greatest day of the feast... Jesus, who had been elusive in Jerusalem, Jesus stands up and cries out and takes centre stage with all the people around. Verse 37. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. See, Jesus told a woman in Samaria, in this half-cast area, this remote and outcast area, in chapter 4, verse 13, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again at this well, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This is water imagery. Jesus told a crowd now up north in Galilee. 
in chapter 6, verse 35. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But now he's not in Samaria, in the outcast area. Now he's not in remote Galilee. Now he is at the temple in Jerusalem. And he stands up in a loud voice and says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them, from their gut, from their belly. So Jesus is doing it again. He's saying, everything you're doing today Everything about this festival and this feast, it's all about me. It's all about me. I'm the fulfilment. I am the water for the dry land. I am the one who will send rivers from Jerusalem. I am hope. I am the one bringing in the messianic age because I am Messiah. If you want these things, come and believe in me says Jesus. You know, the prophet Joel said that on the day of the Messiah, God would pour out his spirit on, on his people. The prophet Ezekiel spoke that when the Messiah day the, the, the new age, that God would put his spirit into our hearts. There would no longer be just God with us, but God in us. And Jesus is basically saying, that day is coming with me for all who hear, believe and obey. Verse 39, by this Jesus meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. It's all waiting for Jesus' death, resurrection and ascension and God would pour out his spirit. There would be streams of living water for those who believe in Jesus. What a claim. Living water. Got it in a vial. You know, there were many ancient cultures and religions who spoke about the elixir of life. A drink, a potion that you could take that would give you immortality. The Chinese had Sun Simio in 581 or to 600 AD. He was called the king of medicine. He wrote lots of his potions and treatments, including elixirs for immortality. And if you look at what he wrote, he wrote, they often included such wonderful ingredients as sulphur and mercury and salts of arsenic and mercury. In fact, historians, some historians think that many of the a number of the Chinese emperors probably died from elixir poisoning. Thanks to our good old mate Sun Simeo. So there you are. You're holding this vial in your hand. Does it contain the elixir of life? Is it living water? What do you do with this? If you're the Chinese emperor, I want to say, don't drink. Jesus says, I am living water. Come to me and drink. I am the elixir of life. What do you do? See, it's decision time in John's Gospel. 
Are you going to drink or drop? Verse 40. On hearing these words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others said, He is the Messiah. Still others asked, How can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not Scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Jesus had certainly made an impression. Is he the prophet that Moses spoke about? Well, yes, he is. Is he the Messiah? Yes, he is. I say, no, he's from Galilee. He's up north. He's a northerner. Uh, The Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem and be from the line of David, which is quite fascinating because you see Luke's Gospel and Matthew's Gospel stress that Jesus was born in Bethlehem from the line of David as the Christians knew by the time John's Gospel was written and the Apostle Paul stressed again and again that Jesus was from the line of King David, that he actually fulfilled all these requirements for the Messiah. But here in Jerusalem, they're not sure and it's decision time. How we going to deal with this man we can't ignore him how do we decide is he the elixir of life or is he poison do we drink of him or do we destroy him because he's dangerous well one option how do you decide one option is you use your logic you look at the facts that's a very sensible thing to do let's ask some questions let's have a look at what jesus taught Was what Jesus taught in line with what the Old Testament scriptures taught? That's a good place to start. What about Jesus' heritage? Good questions, actually. The Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Was he born in Bethlehem? The Messiah would be from the line of David. Was he from the line of David? The Messiah, what about Galilee? Could the Messiah come from Galilee? Yeah, good questions. Another another consideration is what does he do? Let's look at what he does. Is this the sort of thing you'd expect the Son of God to do? The King of Israel? The Son of Man? And finally, what about how he behaves? What about his character? How does he treat other people? Is this the way you'd expect the Word of God, the bread of life, God with us, to behave? Good questions. Use your logic. Observe what you see, if only it was so simple. If only it was so simple for us. I was reading the Eternity magazine, newspaper which is out in the foyer, and there's an article just near the back, written by a friend of mine, Simone Richardson, and I was good mates with her husband at Bible College, Andrew. Um, In that article, it's titled How We Change Our Minds and it refers to the work of Professor Jonathan Haidt from the United States. He's a professor of social psychology. Here's a quote from him. I'll put my glasses down to read this. The mind is divided like a rider on an elephant and the rider's job is to serve the elephant. The rider's job is to serve the elephant. The writer is our conscious reasoning, the stream of words and images of which we are fully aware. The elephant is the other 99% of mental processes, the ones that occur outside of our awareness, 
but that actually govern most of our behaviour. He has an illustration of the rider on the elephant. The rider is 1%. That is our conscious verbal thinking brain. What we think, our logic, our processing of facts in a logical way. The elephant is our gut. It's these automatic emotional visceral responses. So we think that we are being very logical and doing what's logical but actually our gut is controlling everything. And when we pull on the ear this way or that way we're often just pulling the way the elephant's going to go anyway and we're telling ourselves that we're in control but we're not in control. The elephant's deciding. The elephant has the power. The elephant chooses where the elephant wants to go. And we're not even aware. We adjust our thinking and our logic to tell ourselves that we're in control and that we're so logical about it when our gut is driving. That's Dr. Haidt's thesis. I think he's spot on. We are primarily, he says, social creatures, emotional creatures and the most powerful motivator of all is groupthink. So if you grow up within a certain social context, your logic will adjust to fit your social context, your gut. When I was at Bible college, I had a lecturer for a period, short, just a short period, he was one of these visiting lecturers, but he gave us this quote, it was his quote, and I remember it, Ashley Null was his name, Dr. Ashley Null, the, what the heart loves, the will chooses and the mind justifies. I think it's spot on. What we want here, we choose and then we work out why we've chosen it. The elephant is in control. Is Jesus deadly poison or living water? How will we decide? Let's use our logic. Well, let's have a look at how the Pharisees decide. They are a perfect illustration of Dr. Haidt's thesis. Forget the facts. They want Jesus out of the scene. They want him dead. He is deadly poison. Verse 44. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. You mean he has deceived you also? Have any of the rulers or any of the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob knows nothing of the law. There is a curse on them. The temple guards say, listen, there's something about him. We just can't arrest him. There's, uh, 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 uh. Listen, we're the experts. Don't think, don't investigate, don't follow what you're seeing. Conform. They take the moral and intellectual high ground as so often happens in groupthink. There's a self-righteous superiority. They curse those who disagree with them. And they start, if you like, to argue from the academy. Don't you love the argument from the academy? 
We, uh, we know what's right. No scientist could ever, no psychologist would ever these days, that's archaic thinking, no psychologist these days would ever, no lawyer who's an expert in assessing facts could ever believe, no doctor would ever think such, no Hindu, Hindu people do not, We are very open. No honourable son or daughter would ever consider none of my friends would think we do it all the time. The elephant charges around down the road of social cohesion and the status quo And the rider convinces themselves that they're pulling the reins. Just like the Pharisees, except for one brave soul who is prepared to look and see and consider. One brave soul named Nicodemus. We met him back in chapter 3. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God for no one could perform the signs you were doing if God were not with him. Nicodemus was prepared to look and think. After Jesus' crucifixion, he prepared Jesus, helped to prepare Jesus to be placed in the tomb. Nicodemus, Braveheart, challenges the group think of his peers. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, Does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? And they replied, Are you from Galilee? Two, look into it and you'll find that a prophet does not come from Galilee. Are you going to drink the poison, Nicodemus? And then how about we hit you with a regional slur? Are you a Queenslander too? No prophet comes from Galilee, dummy. Toe the line or get out, Nicodemus. And the elephant stomps all over the place. We're going this way. You better come with us or we'll crush you. How ironic it is. No prophet comes from Galilee, well, maybe Jonah, Nahum. No prophet comes from Galilee. Well, there was this one prophet, the great prophet, Isaiah. He was just like these guys. He was a priest in Jerusalem serving around the temple. 800 years earlier, and he said in his prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9, speaking of a day to come, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, But in the future, he will honour Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Of those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. And Isaiah goes on to speak of the changes, the new life, the new age that will come with the Messiah. And then he says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. 
and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace and of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end and he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. In other words, the prophet Isaiah says, not just a prophet, the Messiah will come from Galilee. Born in Bethlehem of the line of David to reign on David's throne. (laughs) What irony! How wrong could these guys be? The new age is coming from someone from Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea. These Pharisees and chief priests thought they were controlling the elephant but the elephant of their own desires, their own desire to be in control, their own desire to maintain the status quo, to be Lord, to have God on a string while they control the religion, which charging down the way road of its own choosing. They were blind and they could not see. And we are just like them. Let's not be too critical. We'd rather stay Lord of our own life than assess this person, Jesus, who says, I am the living water. See, one thing that's beyond dispute in this whole story, there is something about Jesus. He's hard to ignore and he doesn't give us that option and he is, if you like, the elephant in every room. He demands a response. Jesus says, I am living water. In, a sense, he's, in essence, he's saying, I am your Messiah. I am the new age leader. I am Lord. The temple guards hear this. No one ever spoke like this guy spoke. The Pharisees say, and the chief priests say, he's poison, he's a deceiver, he's a fraud. And Nicodemus says, give the man a hearing. Just check him out. Who's your hero here? Who do you want to emulate? It's decision time. We hold in our hands two vials or two options. Is Jesus living water or is he deadly poison? There are reasonable two options because you look at what this man claims about himself. (laughs) If it's not true, he is deadly poison. If it is true, he's living water. I want to finish this with two challenges around our theme of hear, believe and obey. The theme we have this year. We've been encouraging us through our camp and just hoping to keep this up to be active in sharing Jesus relationally through our lives, through the natural flow of our lives with with our friends and family and colleagues who don't yet know Jesus. We want to encourage people to drink of Jesus and find life in him. To do that, do we argue first? Do we, do we persuade? Do we preach and declare? Do we pull out our arguments for the historicity of the Bible and the reliability of Jesus and the likelihood of the resurrection? There's a place for that. But if you think about my elephant friend, which I think's got it right, 
Our arguments will get nowhere if the elephant's heading in the other direction. What we've got to think about as we share our faith is getting to people's guts, getting to their spirit and their emotions. And we do that, we earn a hearing by loving them first. On our church camp, um, Woos encouraged us to bless people and eat with other people. There's the first two steps. Active in blessing, active in loving and active in making time to eat, to open up relationship and conversation. Because if we don't do those things, we're not going to get around to people emotionally considering what we're saying propositionally. And if the emotions aren't willing to give us a hearing, we'll get nowhere. Can I encourage you, as we encourage people to hear, believe and obey, love deeply first. Because we want that elephant to change. Now here's the other thing. This is spiritual work. We need to pray. Because that elephant ain't going to change unless God does a miracle. We're not going to get the rider to hear and start thinking and taking greater control unless God does a miracle by his spirit. So we need to pray. To think that somebody could grow up with a Buddhist Taoist background and parental filial nature and then say, I'm going to follow Jesus with all the implications. That's a miracle. It's a miracle God can do. We need to pray that he would. Second challenge. It's pretty simple, on the same thing. But really, are we the Pharisees? Are you a Pharisee? Because we all are. What's your elephant doing that's stopping the reality of Jesus getting through to you? And I'm, I'm talking to you also as Christians. I'm talking to you if you're not a believer yet. And I'm talking to you if you are a believer. What are you doing to filter the truth? To satisfy the elephant? I don't want to do this and I'm not going to do this because I'm going this way because this is how my... This is who I am. This is my social grouping and I'm not listening. I really encourage us to take Jesus and come to him as he is, as he's revealed to us in the scriptures. And be prepared to look outside your social structures and the group think that surrounds you. And if you find yourself taking an intellectually superior stand of self-righteousness without ever having considered the facts, call yourself up. Because what we need to do with Jesus, Jesus makes this clear, is we need to drink. In other words, you need to even get past just the brain processing, past the gut processing. You need to take him and say, yes, you are living water. But you need to do more than that. You need to drink. You need to put your faith in him. You need to trust him for who he is, which is Lord, which is the bringer of the new age, which is the one who will raise Cliff Perriam from the grave. Cliff's one of the most godly, and I say this without a shred of exaggeration. He is in the top, let's give him the top five at least, if not number one. 
godly man I have ever known. He lived to 104 and 8 months and this morning he died. And it's sad. And he's done it better than probably any of us will. But there's hope for Cliff Perriam because he trusts Jesus because he drank of that life-giving stream and he will live in the kingdom of God forever. World without end. So I encourage you to drink. I encourage you to assess, put away your blinkers and if Jesus is the truth, to drink and do what he says. See, Jesus said, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Hallelujah. Amen.